I've got a short passage to read. We have uh, entitled John 17, Listen, Jesus is Praying. When I left off last time, I summarized how he prayed based on the fact that he finished the work his Father gave him to do. And he prayed, Lord, return me to the glory that I had with you from the beginning. That's what he prayed. Then, after that, he prayed for the disciples, those, especially those 11 that were left of the 12. He prayed for them, and he prayed as he was leaving the world. He said, one, please be unified. Lord, unify them. Make them one. He said, Lord, give them joy. And Lord, keep them safe. And Lord, set them apart. Sanctify them by your word. Now, why? Why was this the prayer of Jesus? Now, by the way, I've heard people refer to the model prayer, you know, our Father which art in heaven as Jesus' prayer. No, no, that's not Jesus' prayer. That's the model prayer. That's our prayer. You're reading Jesus' prayer here in John 17. This is what he prayed right here in John 17. So I want you to look at a verse of Scripture as the focal point of his whole prayer. Verse 18 says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. This is what it's about. Father, I've come. I've done what you asked me to do. I'm headed to the cross. I'm going to rise from the dead. And now then, I am sending them. They're going to take my place. I'm sending them and I'm praying for them, Father. Jesus prayed regarding these disciples. They were in, a re, they, in relation to the task that they had been given. Now, folks, if they were disjointed, if they were self-seeking, or if they were self-promoting, uh, and that was how their apostleship was going to go, then it would come to nothing. And that was a danger. You say, well, why do you say that was a danger? Well, because they've already asked these 12, one of them already asked, who's going to be the greatest? Somebody else asked in the group, oh, and by the way, who gets to sit on your right hand beside your throne in the kingdom? And oh yeah, Peter asked something else. Hey Lord, we left everything. What are we going to have? In other words, it was a possibility these, I mean, the 11 who had been with him, it was a possibility for them to be me first mentality and be self-seeking. So Jesus prayed for them and he prayed for them to be one. He prayed also uh, that, um, he, he prayed that they would be unified because the gospel advances better when messengers are full of joy, the joy of sins forgiven, the joy of their destiny in heaven already being determined. They, they, they needed protection because because they're going to be hated and maligned and opposed and persecuted just the same way Jesus was. He warned them. They did it to him. They're going to do it to his followers, his messengers. And then he closed the section by praying for their sanctification by the truth of God's word. They needed to understand this, that they've been set apart. Their salvation meant they were set apart from the world unto God, only to be sent back into the world with the word of truth the same word of truth that had rescued them from sin's penalty and power. So that's verse 18. You say, what's the purpose of the prayer? To get the people ready to fulfill verse 18. And what was verse 18? I've been sent into the world, and just like I have been sent, I'm leaving. I am sending you. If I can't say anything else this morning, if you don't take anything else with you, 
then take this. As Jesus was sent, we are sent. He is the apostle. We are lowercase a, sent ones. We are apostles. Now, we need to stand and read a short passage. So, let's stand and read it as is our custom. It's verse number 20 through 26, verses 20 to 26 of John 17. It's short, but very, very impactful. And so, let's read it together, voice out loud. Ready? I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one." I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Father, add your blessing again to the preaching and teaching of your word. I pray for our brother Bob Hemsbergen and for his son Matt and other family members that may be involved. I pray for them in the loss of Laura. Please be with them during this difficult time. I also want to pray for brother Greg Pollock and the High Point Church of Altoona, a wonderful church that's standing up and preaching just like we are the gospel of grace this morning. Bless them. Be with us now as we look into your word and help us be challenged. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And you can be seated. All right. So there are a few places, there are a few places in the Bible that you can find yourself in the Word of God. You can find yourself in the Bible. There are many. I picked out a couple, and let me just tell you a couple of them. One, Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All like sheep have gone astray. That's me. All of us, everyone has sought his own way. That's me. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the sin, the iniquity, and the transgressions of us all. You see, we're all included in the word all. We've all entered into the first all. Praise the Lord, we can enter into the second all and have our sins forgiven. Amen? All right, let me go on. You know this verse. Who doesn't? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm in that part of the world. And I also have one. I'm a whoever or whosoever. Whoever believes can have eternal life. And then how about this one? Oh, I, I, could, I could preach this one verse for two weeks. It says in Romans eleven thirty two, for God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on Oh, oh, what a power-packed verse. In other words, quickly, God in Adam condemned the whole race so that God in Christ could redeem the whole 
race. Only God would think of that, folks. We would never think, in, we think of fairness. God thinks of, God thinks of salvation and redemption. Praise the Lord for his unspeakable gift. So that we're in the Bible. But I want to tell you that in verse number 20, I think we all find ourselves in this verse because it says in 20, I do not pray for these alone. Speaking of the 11 left since Judas has gone astray. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their Word. Now, I find myself in this passage of Scripture because they took the Word of God and they carried it and they preached it and they, pro- they proclaimed it and many people came to believe. And then those people took God's Word in their heart and they believed it and they preached it and proclaimed it and many believed. And they made disciples and then they made disciples and then they made disciples. And today I'm here because somebody took the Word of God forward. Amen. You see, I'm included in that. Those who will believe through their word. That's it. It might as well say I'm praying for Phil Winfield because he's going to hear the written word of these men, the gospels and epistles that is, preached by someone and he is going to believe. So I can say to you with all confidence, I am in the Bible and Jesus was praying, is praying for me and he is praying for you and he was praying for you. And so what is Jesus praying about. That's the big question that we need to find out. Well, verse 18 says he had sent his disciples into the world. Now then, those who believe through their word are also being sent into the world. And so what is he praying about? Point one on your little sheet there. I hope you got one. Write it down. Here it is. Jesus is praying for believers to be united. Verses 20 through 23, unity is of ultimate importance to the Lord Jesus. These verses, I want you to let me read them again, and I want you to either circle, underline, or otherwise mentally note something in these verses, and I'm going to emphasize it. Verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. That's one time. And you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be one. That's two times. And that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them that they may be one. That's three times. Just as we are one. That's four times. Verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one. That's five times. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. In those two verses... 21 and 21 to 23 in those verses, a couple of verses, it's mentioned five times that he is praying for us to be one, make them one. God is praying for unity for us, just like he was praying unity for his disciples. Now folks, unity is essential for the church. I've already discussed uh, the idea last time when we gathered that uh, now we're not talking about coming together in unity with people who deny the truth. No, we, we unify around the truth. Uh, we don't dismiss the truth, the truth of the gospel in order to join together with any and all who say they serve God or are religious. And folks, I, let me just boldly declare, uh, standing on the truth of the word of God, that all roads and all religions do not lead to heaven. They do not. Now, we're talking about being unified around the truth, but let me hurry on and say something else. Here's a quote, kind of interesting. Among Protestants on a recent computation, the global denominational number was over 22,000. What? What, 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 what? I said, okay, so among non-Catholics that proclaim to be followers of Jesus... According to this document here by Bruce Mill, the message of John, here is your king. 
According to this document right here, it says that in the world at the time of the writing that there were 22,000 known denominations among non-Catholics. Let me ask you a question. How could it be possible that we can read the same book, believe in the same truth, and we need 22,000 versions of the church? If you were an unbeliever, would that be encouraging or discouraging? Would it comfort you that they know what they're doing or would it discourage you? So important for unity. Now, folks, we are unified supernaturally, verses 21 and 22. I, I, can't, I can't dig into this to the nth degree, but let me just mention to it this morning. I, I don't understand it, but we are baptized spiritually into the body of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 12. In other words, one day I said yes to Jesus. One day I understood that I was, according to the law, guilty before God, separated and condemned and headed to hell. I understood it. And I repented of my sins, called out on Jesus to be my Savior. And at that instant, I was baptized by the Holy Spirit, 1 1 Corinthians 12, 12, into the body of Christ worldwide, a great group of believers all over the world. Now, folks, we baptize people right up here all the time. But when people get baptized up there, they're not being baptized into the body of Christ. They are being baptized as a profession of the fact that they have been spiritually placed into the body of Christ and they're identifying with him and his local expression, this local New Testament church, and they're joining with us. And so that is very important. Now, last week, I went with Pastor Marty to, and, and a team down to the nation of Panama. And while we were there, I met people that I had never seen and I did not know existed. But when they were introduced and presented to me, they were presented as brothers and sisters in Christ, believers in Jesus, and uh, that, they, uh, that they were completely committed to him. And so, uh, as I got to know them, we began to talk immediately. The, the culture, the customs, and the language distances faded into the distance, and we shared fellowship at the same table, and then I shared the Word of God from the pulpit. And I just want you to know there was an instant and there was an automatic reception between us because we were related to the same Father, and we had been redeemed by the same Savior and through the blood of the same person, Jesus Christ. That's what our relationship was. Now, I love all you folks this morning. I have been a part of this church for many, many years, going back too many to count now. And, and I know many, I, I don't know the name of every person. I used to know the name of 90% of the people in the room, but I'm getting old. So I, I can't keep up with it. But I know, I know many of you. I love you. I serve with you. But the honest truth is there would be zero relationship between me and 99% of the people in this room were it not for one fact I wouldn't have any, I would have no reason to get to know you and to be part of your life were it not for the fact that we have been born into the same family spiritually by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. You have been purchased by the blood of Jesus just like me and you mean everything to me. You see, this is this supernatural unity that God puts among us. It's supposed to be that way. There's a visible unity. We're unified visibly. So there's this spiritual unity that's worldwide among all believers. I don't care what language you speak, what color your skin is, what race. There's a spiritual unity. One day, all before the throne in that heavenly choir singing and casting our crowns before him. But there are also, we are on earth unified visibly. What do you mean by that? I mean this, that there are local churches that are visible to the world. The congregation of believers, like this one, 
is very important as a witness to the world that the invisible church even exists. The fact that there are local expressions and congregations of real people with skin on that get together from week to week regularly, they get together in a location like this is evidence that we ascribe to, believe in, and have, have, have trusted all of our eternity into the hands of the same person, and we gather together on a regular basis. Every time we assemble, we give a collective witness to the reality of the family of God, and it is important that we do not forsake the assembly. Folks, when people drive up and down that expressway and they look over, maybe they're unbelievers or atheists or something like that, they just look over and glance, and they, you know, in their mind, they can only think one time, poor people, they still believe it. You know what? I still believe it. Amen. And so we're a witness, just the fact that we gather. So Jesus is praying for our unity, just like he prayed for the disciples. Lord, make them one, unify them. Number two, Jesus is praying for the world to be converted. Look at verse 21. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be one in us. Why? 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 That the world may believe that you sent me. Look at verse number 23. I and them, you and me, that they may be, perfect, per, may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you loved me. Jesus is praying for the world to be converted. That they would come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible is so clear about this fact. Second, Second Peter chapter three, verse nine, the, the, the God is not willing that any should perish. It's not his will, but he wants how many to come to repent? He wants all to come to the knowledge of the truth and to repentance. First Timothy teaches us that God wants us to live peace and calm and peaceable lives so that we'll have the opportunity to be witnesses and to draw people to the Lord. He wants people to come to the knowledge of the truth. Listen, the Lord is interested in the world being converted. God intends for the church to be a place where unity and harmony is so prevalent that the world takes note. Our churches are to be love centers where relationships between members are a persuasive reflection of the mutually supportive, the utterly loyal, and the eternally accepting love of the Father. Again, look at verse number 23. It says, I am in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know what? That you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. This is supposed to be a place where the demonstration of the love of God is continual and that they know what has been the command, what has been the repeated command in the book of John over and over and over. He said to him, he says, look here, he says, I don't give you, I says, I'm going to give you a new command. The new command is, is that you love one another. In another location, he says, I'm going to give you a new command. No, not really a new command, but an old command, that you love one another. Then we get over to 1 John, chapter, the book of 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He says it over and over and over and over. He says, how can you love a God in heaven that you can't see if you don't love your brother that you can see? Love one another. We're supposed to love one another. Now, folks, this is the great qualifier for us as witnesses in the world that we love one another. So point two is actually this one. Father, let them be so united that the world can be, uvert, be converted. Evangelism happens two ways, and I'm going to give it to you quickly. Evangelism happens by proclamation. We have to use words. Look at verse number 20. It says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
In other words, they're going to speak. They're going to talk about it. And many are going to come to faith because they are proclaiming the good news of the gospel. We need to use words. Now, there's all kinds of people that are saying, no, we just need to let the light shine. And then people will ask us questions. They don't always do that. They don't always say, oh, why are you such a great person? Always have a good attitude. Always work hard on the job. They don't always. Now, we're supposed to do that because if we don't, it disqualifies our message. But on the other hand, they don't just say, wow, this guy must be a real follower of Jesus because they don't do that. We must use words, believers who were scattered everywhere. Remember the book of Acts and when the believers were scattered beginning in the last part of chapter eight and all the way through nine and following those believers, they were persecuted. They had to run for their lives and they scattered everywhere. But when they did that, they didn't just show up and be nice. They showed up and they spoke about the resurrected Lord. Evangelism happens by proclamation. Something else, evangelism is enhanced by demonstration. This is what I've been saying. If there's a lack of unity among us, that's the result of our spirit-controlled living, then we cancel out our proclamation. And if I say we love one another, we're supposed to love God. Listen, the great commandment is so clear. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And who else is supposed to love? Our neighbor is ourself. Can't separate them. Now watch. Listen to Bruce Milne. He's like my new, my favorite new theologian that I've been reading. Listen to this quote. The biggest barriers to effective evangelism, according to the prayer of Jesus, are not so much outdated methods or inadequate presentations of the gospel, but they are the realities like gossip, insensitivity, negative criticism, jealousy, backbiting, an unforgiving spirit, a root of bitterness, failure to appreciate others, self-preoccupation, greed, selfishness, and every other form of lovelessness. These are the perpetual enemies of effective evangelism. They render the gospel fruitless, and they send countless thousands into eternity without a Savior. And all I can say is, amen. You see, I believe we have a hole in our holiness. I think, I think sometimes when we just put our brain in neutral and let our tongue idle, I think we say things and do things and act in certain ways that are just not loving, not forgiving, not kind, do not reflect the control of the Holy Spirit, do not reflect a born-again person. And because of that, it puts a hole in our holiness. Let me illustrate. Let's suppose we're going across the Atlantic and we're on a great big boat and it's beautiful. And uh, we won't call it the Titanic, we'll call it something else. But we're going across the ocean and it's beautiful and it's got the most wonderful powertrain in history and the motor is purring and everything's great. But we look and the water level is almost up to the edge of the boat. Well, what are we going to do? The captain calls down, he says, put her in overdrive. We're going to go faster. No, that's not going to fix the problem. We got a hole in our boat. And I think we leak out our effectiveness in our life because sometimes, sometimes we have theoretical holiness instead of we actually do want to live in the power of the Holy Spirit the way that God has asked us to live in kindness. You know, evangelism is a community endeavor. We're all involved. He has given us the tools to make us successful. We have the word of God. The Bible says in Romans chapter one that it, the word of God, Romans 1, 16 and 17, it, the word of God, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It, the power of God, the word of God. 
And so we have the word of God. And then we have something else. We have a divine enabler. I want you to look at verse number 22. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. What? You mean he gave us glory? You mean God? I mean, I thought he was the one that's supposed to have all the glory. Well, he shared his glory. He gave us glory. How'd he do it? Look at verse 23. I and them. If you look at verse 22, the last thing in that sentence is a colon. And if I understand my language axioms well, that means what's following is the explanation or the fulfillment of that. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So here's what it says. It says, I have given you my glory. What's my glory? Well, I live in them. The Holy Spirit lives. You know, we've already studied that in John chapter six, that the father, the son, and the spirit have promised to make their dwelling with us. The Holy Spirit, the power of God, he lives in us and he's given us a little bit of his glory. Second Peter chapter one says that by, by the divine promises that he has given us, he has given us part of his, he has put the divine nature within us so that we have an ability that we would not have otherwise. God is in us. Matthew 28 verse 20 says he promises to accompany us on mission to the end of the age. Now, number three, and quickly, Jesus is praying something else. He's praying for his mission to be completed. (laughs) I want you to look at verse number 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am and that they may behold my glory, which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. What is he praying? He's saying, he said, I'm wanting this whole, I'm looking forward to the consummation of all of this. I'm looking forward to the completion of this purpose. I'm looking forward and I'm praying, I am praying that where I am, my, my brothers and my sisters, the ones who I have redeemed, I'm praying that they will be with me. Well, this isn't new. He said in John chapter 14, look, boys, I know you're discouraged. I know you're upset, but look, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away to prepare a place for you, I'm coming again to receive you to myself. Why? So that where I am, you may be also. You know what Jesus wants? He wants his family with him. Let me give you something here. What is the hardest thing about husbands who get deployed in wartime? Don't think there's not some military wives that are concerned right now. What is the hardest thing about husbands being deployed in wartime or wives on the other hand? It's the separation. What is the hardest thing about the loss of a family member, son, daughter, husband, father, wife, or any person you might mention? What's the hardest thing? It is the separation. And Jesus said that everyone believes in me, everyone that believes in me, he said, I'm going to raise them on the last day. That's Matthew 10, 15, John 6, 40, 44, 54, and 11, 24. He says, I, everybody that God has given me, I'm saving them and I'm raising them at the resurrection and they're going to be with me forever. Jesus said he is coming back for us so that where he is, we can also be. Now, I don't know about you, but I am looking forward to heaven. How many of you are looking forward to being with the Lord Jesus one day in heaven? Say amen. Raise your hand up and say amen. Raise up both hands and say amen. Hallelujah. I'm looking forward to being with Jesus one day in heaven. I have a question. If we're looking forward to that and if we're certain of it, then why do we put down roots so deep and we work so hard to make life so comfortable and well padded while we're here on earth, while the gospel doesn't go forth in many places around the world. Hmm. I'm looking forward to being with Jesus. 
There's one more thing that gives tremendous motivation for the appeal that I'm going to make to you today. And we find it in verses 25 and 26. It says, verse 25, oh, righteous father. A little earlier, he called him, oh, holy father. It's the only time in the book of John he says either one of those things. Oh, righteous father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these men have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Focus on verse 25. Oh, righteous father, the world has not known you. They have not known you. Well, is that significant? Do you think that is, that is a difficulty that people do not know God? Take, take your Bible, take your finger, run it up the page, same book, same prayer, run it up to 17.3. And this is life eternal that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's the situation in verse number 25? The world does not know you. If they don't know the Father and they don't know the Son, you got to have both to have either. First John chapter, chapter 2 says, we have to have both of them to have either one of them. But here's the point. Unless they know God the Father and His Son Jesus whom He has sent, they're lost They're hopeless, they're helpless, they're condemned, they're doomed, they're under the wrath of God. Because John 3.36 says, if those who believe uh, are free from the wrath of God, but those who believe not are under his condemnation already. Not that they need to make a decision to say no, they're already condemned. They don't know him. They don't know him. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you have people in your life that do not know God. They don't know Jesus. They've never asked him to be their savior. How many of you say, I have people like that. Just raise your hand up. The world doesn't know the father. They don't know God. Brethren, we have been sent to the world with the news that God's law is intact. The news is as sinners stand condemned in their sin, yet Jesus paid for their sins for everyone who believes. Many of you have raised your hands and given testimony already this morning that you have many family members and friends, acquaintances and coworkers and neighbors and so on. You know that they do not know God. I'm not asking you if they're religious. Religion can save no one, but a relationship with a father by way of the son can save anyone. Amen. <laughs> I'm not asking you about religion. I'm asking you, do they have a relationship? Do they know God? Have they believed on him? I want to ask you a question, and this will lead me into my application today, and that is how many of you, let me stop and say that we have this beautiful production, name of our conference, Sowers, and that's what this is all about this morning. Beautiful magazine, Marty and team have put out, beautiful letter that he's written talking about our purpose, schedule, all these different missionaries, we got the ones from Venezuela and Peru and all over the world. We've sent these people out, some of them from our church, some of them from other churches, some of them that we've gotten on board with them because they're doing the great work for God. And they have a great passion for the lost around the world. And we are collaborating with them. We are getting some credit for some of what they do. The Bible says clearly in Philippians chapter 4 that some of that comes on our account because we're helping support them in the work they do. Praise God. But I got news for you. 
We're going to celebrate with them. We're going to rejoice with them. We're, going to, we're just going to be encouraged by the work that they're doing. But there's not a single one of these people right here, not one of them that's working in your mission field. None of them. Because we have sent some people around the world, but God has sent and sowed us right here. Right here. How many of you realize this? No hands raised, please. How many of you realize that you may be the best possible messenger for the people of your life to hear the honest, straightforward truth about the gospel? I mean the truth that they're law-breaking sinners already condemned and separated from God and under his wrath. And then the additional truth that God loves them anyway and did something about it and did something about their sin by substituting his own son for them. We're getting ready to receive these six missionary families at our GO conference beginning on Wednesday. They are sowers, but so are we. We're going to celebrate the great things that they are doing, but what they are doing is not reaching your and my mission field. I want to issue a challenge today, and that's what this is about. I have a little booklet right here, the booklet, and the name of the, on the booklet says, Why the Cross? Why the Cross? It's a little booklet that we have prepared, and it is a very clear, with Scripture, explanation of why the cross was necessary, what put Jesus on the cross, what happened at the cross, and how the great substitution, the atonement, makes all the difference for everyone who believes. It's very simple, straightforward. I believe with all my heart, if you will read this, and I'm, in a little while you're going to have a chance to pick these up. If you will read this personally and read it slowly, praying, I believe you, just with this little booklet in your hand, would be well equipped to help someone else come to faith in Jesus. But here's my challenge to you. Here's the booklet, and I'm looking for a commitment. Now, right in your bench, right in front of you, are some cards that look just like this. And if there's not any of these there, don't worry. There's going to be some just outside the door. But if you can find that card, if you are a teenager and up, if you're a teenager and up and you can find that card, I'd like you to get one of those in your hand. It says Sowers 2023. It says, I am committed to personally distributing eight gospel booklets over the next eight weeks. That's the total commitment. The card in front of you, over the next eight weeks, what we'd like you to do is we would like you for, to give one booklet a week to someone you know with whom you have a chance for further conversation. Now, you say, well, I just don't have anybody like that I can give them to. Okay, then indiscriminately give it to someone hoping that God can use it. But the best person to give it to is someone you know so that after you give it to them, you can ask the question, hey, Bill. I gave you a little book. Did you get a chance to read it? Yeah, I read it. What do you think about that? So that there can be a further conversation. So eight of these over the next eight weeks. So that's one per week. Take the card that you have there in your hand, this card. I'm asking you to do this. You say, Pastor, this is this commitment thing. I just really, I don't know about this. Okay. What if Jesus didn't want to make a commitment at the cross? Commitment's a good thing. And so I'm asking you to make a commitment that over the next eight weeks, write your name on the card. We're not going to dun you for anything. Or we're not going to do anything. All we, all the reason we want your name on the card is I'm going to make myself the biggest prayer list I've ever had. And I'm going to pray for everybody that's, that's committed to doing this. Now watch. 
I want you to take that card, write your name on it, and as you go out the door this morning, there's going to be a basket. You can put that little card in, and as you do so, even if you don't have one in front of you, there'll be a card there you can fill out. I want you to pick up your eight-pack, and then I want you to go. You say, Pastor, what's the goal? Well, I'm praying for 375 people to take this direct challenge, and if we do so, 375 times eight comes out exactly to 3,000 people will receive a direct contact with the gospel over the next eight weeks as a result of the ministry and efforts of this group of people here at Grace Church this morning. You say, why 3,000? Well, I mean, on Pentecost, there was 3,000 people who got saved. I just like the number. 3,000. Let's, let's, let's do this. You say, Pastor, how will we measure success? Very simply. Here's success. Success is going to be measured in, do you pray about this and do you do this? And you say, well, what if, they don't, what if they take it and tear it up and throw it in the floor? That's not your responsibility. I want to tell you something. The power of the gospel is in the gospel itself. It's not in the giftedness of the messenger. And so our, our success is measured by our obedience and our opportunity to just take this challenge and give it out. If you give out eight of these over the next eight weeks, check it off. You have, you have been successful and we'll leave it up to God. Say, well, I just don't know if I agree with that. Well, let me read you a Bible verse. I was reading through my Bible on our schedule like everybody else is. I trust you are still doing it. And I'm telling you what, if the Lord ever took a hammer to me and hit me upside the head twice with it on something, it was this one. Listen to Mark chapter 4 and verse number 26. It's a parable. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is as if a man should scatter seed, or he's a sower. He scattered seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. Listen to these words. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, and after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Focus on this phrase. What he did, what he did was is the farmer sowed the seed and he went to bed. And who was it that was responsible for the sprouting of the seed and the result? Who is always responsible for the seed taking action in somebody's life? Who does that? God does. Folks, nobody in the room can save anybody today. Do you know that? You're not me, you and me, we're, we're not saviors, we're messengers. But we give the message about the Savior. We give the message. This is my challenge, this is my confidence. The Bible says in, uh, also in your book, this, this booklet is listed as a main verse, but the Bible says in Psalm chapter 126, verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. And he who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Tears has the lost condition of your Family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and acquaintances has their lost condition, their hell-bound state brought you to tears, brought you to a place of concerted and constant prayer. And will you, will you go forth weeping? Will you take the challenge, hand them a book, and say, please read that with hopes of a conversation. God bless you, each and every one. This is my sermon. This is my challenge. We've been sent. Let's act like it.
and let's go. So I challenge you, take that card, put your name on it, go out those doors, hand it to whoever's there. I think it's Marty and Matt. They're going to be there. Take your packet. If we run out, we'll have more by next Sunday. All right? God bless you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you'd add your blessing to the preaching and teaching of your word. And I pray, Father, that we would, we would be challenged in our hearts. This is a very simple, straightforward step that we can take to put a gospel message in front of the people we love and help us to do it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.